Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Gators Breakdown. The Gators Fan Podcast, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SCC. I am joined this week by co-host Will Miles. You can find him at readandreaction.com and on Twitter at WillMilesSCC. Man, Will, at uh I was going to try and take it a little easy last week, just do one draft show. Then the theatric facing interview was so good. I split it up into another episode, and CJ Henderson gets drafted by the Jaguars. So, kind of a local angle here with News for Jack. So, ended up doing uh, ended up doing three episodes last week in what I thought would be a light week. Yeah, well, no, nobody's complaining about having more content no. these days since there's nothing else really going on. I guess that's one of the nice parts about the draft and the NFL keeping the draft in when they did is that, uh, you know, there, there's stuff to talk about. And the draft is always sort of about hope anyway. So it, it's kind of fun in the in the times that we're in right now to, to talk about hope, talk about the football season, talk about what teams are going to do and particularly how the Gators are going to fit into that. Yeah, and uh, to do that, we'll, we'll kind of – lay out our thoughts of what the NFL did last week as well as far as the new virtual draft. But to uh, help us break it all down, also joining us on this episode as we take a look back at the 2020 NFL draft is Tyler Moss of the Fantasy Stock Exchange. Tyler, thanks for uh, hopping on to to help give us a look at these Gators in the NFL. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, I mostly work with fantasy content, but I'm a huge Gator fan. Love monitoring the SEC and always love Gator football. It's what I grew up on. So very excited to be on the podcast today with you. All right, gentlemen. Yeah, so I kind of uh, alluded to it. And and last week was um, hopefully the last virtual draft we'll have to deal with. (laughs) It was was kind of weird. And then Roger Goodell, I mean, look, I think they did the best they could uh, given what they had to deal with. And um, everybody, look, I work at a TV station, so I know exactly how hard it is to uh, try and do everything virtual uh, right now. So as big as the, you know, the big as the NFL is, well, man, I, I thought they did a good job. It was just, you know, you kind of just lost the emotion of it. And you know, Roger Goodell even joked about it a good bit. He missed hugging the players and the players walking up and trying the hats on and following from the, the green room and all that kind of stuff. It's um, and the drama, you know, not a lot of trades. I don't know if the virtual aspect played into that, but uh, the, the drama was kind of lacking as well. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, I think 
Um, we all kind of expected, or at least I think some of us were, were maybe thinking there might be some more technical glitches yeah. and some things that went on. In, in fact, they had some technical glitches when they did their dry run. So uh, at the time, I was like, well, they're going to have to invite their, their kids over for dinner so that they can be tech support afterwards <laughs> for the draft. But, um, you know, I mean, I, I guess we learned a few things. One is that uh, is that Goodell has a basement that really isn't any nicer than, than most of us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I, it was interesting that they had Goodell be the MC for the event as opposed to having somebody in as a host to do that sort of thing. I was a little bit surprised. I thought maybe they'd have somebody other than him. But uh, yeah, I think the NFL struck a pretty good tone. It, it's, you know, it's, it's a celebration of the league. It's a celebration of sort of the interaction with college football. But at the same time, it's a little bit of a muted time just because of just because of the coronavirus. I think they sort of struck the right balance and and really gave people what they were craving. I mean, obviously, the ratings say that. So, um you know, pretty successful three-day stint for the NFL and, and certainly a lot for everybody to talk about. Tyler, what were your thoughts? Yeah, so, I mean, I thought there would be, you know, maybe a, either it was going to be a lot more trades or there was going to be a lot less. And I think early on we were seeing teams were kind of hesitant to to move picks. Um, but as the draft kind of got moving on and, and into day two and into day three, I think teams were more comfortable in, in moving off their picks and going back to uh, what it was before. Uh, it definitely was different, but... I think teams started getting adjusted to it. I don't really see it as a long-term solution either. I know that was that was kind of in the in some talks. Uh, it's definitely definitely a one-year thing if it can stay to a one-year uh, ordeal. So I, I'm I'm ready to go back to uh, to the players being there and and the more drama and and uh, fan experience for it. Especially when you go to the fan experience that was Nashville a year ago, and you saw how, what was it? Is it Broadway? Is what they call it down there, downtown Nashville, mm-hmm. and, and how they filled that up. Uh, in, in comparison, yeah, we got uh, it, Vegas would have been fun, and, and seeing how they uh, do that, so good for Vegas to to get the draft back uh, in, in a couple of years. But uh, that's uh, yeah, you definitely, especially going seeing that stark change from a year ago, uh, I think speaks volumes to you know kind of the situation that we're in. Yeah, yeah. there will be some interesting – I'm sure it will be like, you know, the XFL a few years ago when, when the first time it started, there were some things that the NFL took from that experience, in particular the camera that's sort of above everybody. Um, you know, and obviously I'm not sure anybody could watch football without that behind-view behind camera that you get with the, with the camera that's on the pulleys anymore. And so I suspect they'll take a couple of things that they thought worked well. Um, you do wonder whether the war rooms will sort of shrink down because they had to do it with sort of a skeleton crew this year. And I'm sure there are organizations that will think that that was a better way to go, and they may end up doing that in the future. But uh, but certainly looking forward to to the fountains and the and the boats taking the players over to hug Goodell and all that sort of stuff. Just because, I mean, it's a pageant, right? And, and uh, you know, nobody wins or loses any games. It's, just, it's, it's sort of like the NFL's equivalent of National Signing Day. And uh, so it, it's fun and, and it's interesting to talk about. But certainly without the pageantry, it does feel like there's a little bit missing. Yeah. Uh, Tyler, before we get started, man, uh, let us know and, and let our listeners know uh, what the Fantasy Stock Exchange is all about. Yeah, so um, I'm a co-founder of the channel. We're relatively new. It's it's fantasy football oriented. Uh, Dynasty uh, Debbie, which is involving college players, uh, redraft as well. So it, it's mainly circled around uh, fantasy content, but we, we do go over uh, – this past, we just put out a rookie guide, a fantasy stock uh, exchange rookie guide. Um, we just put out, and, and that we wanted to make 100% free. We wanted our, our, our viewers to get as much from that as possible. FSEDraftGuide.com um, is where you can find it, 100% free. Again, breaking down all the players that we find fantasy relevant. 
Um, and, and more to that, I'm I'm just overall a, a football fan, and you know I, I'm a huge Gator fan, so I'm, I'm really excited to be uh, to be talking Gator football and Gator landing spots today. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So we'll get into uh, to the NFL draft here and uh, our thoughts of you know how these players fit into their new teams uh, and, to, and some Gators news and notes dealing with the draft. But before we get there, remember you can find Gators Breakdown on news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. You'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes as well as news for jacks coverage of the Gator. Gators. And as I mentioned, uh, if you missed last week, interview with Seatric Face and really good interview and his time at Florida. And then uh, on Friday, Culpepper, News for Jack sports anchor, and I uh, broke down CJ Henderson getting picked by the local Jacksonville Jaguars. So uh, a lot of you know good discussion there as far as he yeah, had the first round pick for the Jaguars. Uh, also catch the podcast on uh, all the popular podcast platforms out there, Spotify, Apple, all that good stuff. And follow Gators Breakdown on social media on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. So reviewing the 2020 NFL draft here, seven Gators selected uh, in the 2020 draft. C.J. Henderson, first round pick, ninth overall to the Jaguars. Van Jefferson, second round pick, 57th overall to the Rams. Jabari Zaniga, third round, 79th overall to the New York Jets. Jonathan Grenard goes into third round as well with 90th overall to the Houston Texans. The New York Jets picked up LaMichael Pirine with the 120th pick in the draft, while Freddie Swain and Tyree Cleveland were selected by Seattle and the Denver Broncos with the 214th and 252nd picks, respectively. So, with those seven picks, the Gators finished only behind LSU with 14, Michigan and Ohio State with 10, and Alabama with 9 for the most draft picks in the 2020 NFL draft. Florida was also tied with Clemson and Georgia who also had seven picks apiece. So, Will, you take a look at that list, and, and only Florida and Michigan are teams that haven't reached the college football playoff yet. Uh, Florida's just right behind those you know, other schools in, in fighting for a coveted college football playoff spot. Uh, and, and number of draft picks is just one metric we can look at you know, to say Florida just might be a little closer to those schools uh, and just looking for a few more elite players to get up there. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we've talked a lot about Mullen and bringing in transfers, especially this year with with Lingard and, and Shorter and all those guys coming in. And and you look at this list of the seven guys, and two of them are transfers, right? So you've got <laughs> you've got Grenard and you've got Van Jefferson, two of the top three guys coming in who are transfers. So I do think it says something about the Mullen's ability to sort of cull from that market and and be able to develop there. But you know, C.J. Henderson, obviously, um, we all sort of thought he was a first round pick last year and didn't do anything to hurt his stock so he's up there up there really high and sort of helps perpetuate that dbu moniker that florida likes to argue with lsu about um and and i think having three wide receivers is a big deal too because um you know mullen even said it in his uh in his sort of zoom meeting with the with the press this week that having that getting guys to buy in to have the ball spread around but getting them all drafted means that it's a whole lot easier to convince the next group of guys coming in that having the ball go you know get split amongst multiple guys is not not necessarily something that's going to hurt their long-term prospects so i'm a, a very positive positive three days for florida Tyler, you think so too? You know, of course, everybody likes to compare uh, when you're looking at NFL draft. The SEC themselves just dominated uh, the the draft, but here you have, you know, Florida. Everybody wants to know, kind of, you know, peg Florida. You know, two years ago, coming from Jim McElwain, and then success, 21 wins under Dan Mullen. The success, uh, you know, if, for the draft hasn't really slowed down for Florida. You know, whether they're winning or losing. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it was impressive. Uh, an impressive draft uh, by. 
uh, for Florida and, and who they were bringing in. Uh, Van Jefferson, I thought, in the second round was was yeah, like, honestly shocking to me. I was, I was very much bought into him as a fantasy value, and obviously being a Florida fan, I very much liked him uh, for the Gators. So him going in the second round was very, very surprising. It, it meant that teams were – were understanding of, of the volume that had to be spaced out between multiple different receivers there. And um, people got behind Van Jefferson as, as a talent. They're like, you know what, if we give him a little bit more volume, we think uh, we think he can take up that next step and, and really play a, play a value for us in the NFL. And then other receivers like Swain and Cleveland uh, and other guys that I think teams were willing to take the risk on because of the Dan Mullen system and the proven uh, Gator offense that these guys uh, are fighters. They're used to having to deal with a lot of competition and they're competitors. So you can take a guy on the, on your team like that. Uh, they will compete for you and you'll get great value out of that. So uh, I was very, very happy with, with all the Gator players that were able to go off. All right. A couple notes before we uh, break down uh, the players here. Florida is the only SEC school and one of just four schools nationally to have a, to have had at least one player selected in every draft since 1967, the common era uh, of the draft. Of that group, Florida with 265 has the second most players drafted with USC with 343 ahead of Florida. Uh, and Michigan, 264. Michigan State at 193, trailing the Gators. Florida's total seven picks in this year's draft is the most by the Gators since 2017. It was also the eighth time since 2000 that the Gators had at least seven players drafted. Additionally, Florida has had at least five players selected for the sixth straight year. So let's take a look here at how these players fit into their new teams. And of course, I broke it down a lot last week, but here, but CJ Henderson was the first pick. Uh, and, you know, want more thoughts on it? You can go check out uh, last week too, but let's get Will and Tyler's thoughts here. You know, simply put, Jaguars had a lot of, lead, uh, a lot of needs and could have went anywhere with this pick. No more Jalen Ramsey. No more A.J. Bouye. Uh, Tyler, the, the Jags are getting a good player uh, that can run with the best of them. Yeah, I think they're getting a very effective player in, in C.J. Henderson. Um, you can't you can't deny the the vacation of of the two players that left Jacksonville. Uh, A.J. Bouye going to the Broncos, and and Ramsey obviously traded midseason to uh, to the Rams. So there's a lot of things that that are missing, and cornerback was definitely a need that needed to be filled to replace those two guys. Um, a lot of vacated tackles, a uh, lot of targets that were were thrown at uh, those two players. A total of um, 107. Uh, overall targets to those players, 117. My apologies. Uh, tackles wise, are sitting around 82. I mean, these so clearly these guys were getting targeted when they were uh, when they were playing because they were the main two corners for Jacksonville. So Henderson's going to have to step on and and be the most effective uh, corner for them. He's going to have to play the one, and I think he I think he can do it. I think he can step up and and be the one instantly on an offense. Obviously, that's what he was dealing with uh, with Florida. Well, man, uh, the big knock, and a lot of people are, are of course, are, are hitting CJ with, hey, he can't tackle, or he's got a lack of tackling. Look, uh, that was an issue in, in 2019, but, man, as, as much as we preview Florida and talk Florida, especially going into last year, I don't ever remember that necessarily being an issue uh, talking in, you know, in regards to C.J. Henderson before last season. And, and, of course, the whole team had trouble tackling Miami in the first game of the season, and he obviously con- contributed there. Look, I, I get the knock because it definitely was one in 2019, but I just really don't, you know, I, I don't remember it being such of a knock going into the last season. No, I, I think the tackling stuff is sort of you see him in, 
in Miami in that game, and then every time he misses one after that, it's sort of exacerbated because you sort of have that in your mind. But here's the reality is when you're a cornerback, the least important thing that you have to do is tackle. I mean, it, it's something you need to be able to do. It's something you need to be willing to do, but it's the least important of the skills. And, and that's why he was taken ninth overall. And, and you know, if you're an elite cover corner, that gets you to the Pro Bowl. If you're making the Pro Bowl, nobody cares if you don't want to tackle. And, and you know, Deion Sanders is maybe the best example of that. I mean, he's one of the guys that's considered one of the best corners of all time. And, and that guy shied away from tackling like you wouldn't believe. So I, I, I think, I think one, it's overblown. I also think the other thing is, is that, you know, everybody knew Henderson was a top 10 talent after his sophomore season, and he just wasn't eligible for the draft. And, you know, there probably is a little bit of something in the back of his mind that he doesn't want to get injured in his in his junior season. I mean, that's one of the reasons why he set out the bowl game. So I do think there's probably a little bit of that going on, too. And, you know, after after looking at the film against Miami, I'm sure that he was uh, – he was displeased and so came back and the game against Auburn in particular, I remember yeah. him being a real good tackler. So um, I think he's willing. I think he's capable. I just think it's a matter of making sure that he's in the right mindset to be physical. But again, I think for a corner, that's not really the most important thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's move on here. And next pick here, Van Jefferson. Uh, look, I, I think great fit here for Jefferson going to the Rams. Uh, a little earlier than, than most saw him going, uh, there was a run on wide receivers in the second round, and that, that was only going to help Jefferson uh, going into an offense here with the Rams. You know, likes to spread the ball around. Uh, Jefferson was drafted with the selection of the Rams, uh, you know, picked up by, you know, trading receiver Brandon Cooks. Uh, so, you know, Jefferson could play a big role in this slot. Uh, Tyler, uh, in the slot is where I think he'll make his money in the NFL. He's got experience playing out wide with Florida, and they may move him there too. But I think in the NFL, he fits more uh, of the uh, of a mismatch type in the slot. Yeah, um, Cooper Cup's there right now for the Rams, uh, sitting in their slot. I think that's a guy they could look to move uh, move past. I think his contract's up in two years, so. Um, he, he's definitely going to grow into a role there. Uh, there's a lot of vacated targets from Brandon Cooks, who we know was traded to Houston uh, in the offseason. So I think Van Jefferson is going to find himself uh, a good amount of targets for the team. I think he's going to need that amount of targets. He had 70 in his 2019 season for Florida. So that's just in a 12-game, 13-game sample size. So I, 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 he's we know that he's going to need the volume. So I want to see, see him get that volume to be productive as a fantasy receiver. But overall, I, to the Rams, I think is a very good, uh, very good fit for him. He gets to learn behind Cup in a very, very good uh, offensive playbook. Um, I'm really excited to see what he can do. And, and like, like you touched on, the capital uh, spent on him was was absolutely appalling in my eyes. I didn't think he he would go until uh, back third. Um, so him getting getting that kind of draft capital is going to make him used uh, fairly quickly in the Rams offense. So I'm very excited to see see what McVay draws up for him. Will, man, you, you mentioned it earlier uh, with Jefferson. And look, Dan Mullen's second pick in the draft was a guy who's only been with the program for two years. <laughs> we know this is, he was he was not recruited by Jim McElwain. He went to Ole Miss before Dan Mullen uh, pulled him away to, to, to Florida here. So, you know, uh, a Jim McElwain guy goes first, but uh, a transfer that you brought in to change the offense, bring it from ranked in the hundreds uh, before you got here. And then, you know, the first receiver off the board of the Gators goes in the second round. Well, I mean, I think that's the key, right? Is that Jefferson is an offensive player going, going high in the draft. And, 
and I think it was a stat I heard that the last time Florida had a guy go as high as Jefferson was Tim Tebow. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> back in back in 2010. So, I mean, you know, it's been a long time since Florida's had an offensive guy up that high, and no wonder they've struggled with recruiting guys at that at you know elite receivers when they haven't really had anybody going in the draft. And and from a fantasy perspective, I think actually, I mean, it's a great point that he was drafted in the second round, and so they're going to have to utilize him. But he's also six foot two, and I don't think Cup is that big, and so you know. It's six foot two you do wonder whether they're going to utilize him down in the red zone a lot more um you know particularly even putting him out wide because he does have the ability to generate separation and one-on-one coverage that's really the one thing that everybody has been pretty consistent about jefferson about is that when he gets when he gets somebody one-on-one coverage he has the moves and he has the ability to 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 get him on his hip and be able to beat him doesn't necessarily have the straight line speed that you, that you would want in, in a truly elite wide receiver. But, um, you know, he had eight explosive plays last year on those 70 targets. So, um, but you know, if, the guy I maybe would, would compare him to is an Adam Thielen for Minnesota. Like that's kind of what I'm thinking in terms of what he might be in the NFL. Yeah. And just to, just to touch more on, on that, um, that red zone effect. I mean, my favorite play from Van Jefferson the whole season was um, right there at the end of the, the, almost the end of the second quarter there uh, against LSU. When, when he had that, when he had that cut in uh, as a slot receiver um, for that touchdown score with about four seconds left, that play was, was incredible. Just what he was able to do to, to create any space possible that close on the red zone. Um, that's one of my highlight plays from him. And, and yeah, that provides that Thielen kind of aspect. I think the one issue though um, is he demands a lot of targets to be effective, uh, to be an effective receiver in fantasy. There's only 72 vacated targets uh, in the Rams offense, all coming from Brandon cooks. So I'd be interested to see if he takes any targets away from, from cup or woods, at least in his first season. I think, I think he's built to be a very good long-term receiver fantasy wise um, for the Rams offense, but I want to see what he can do in this first season. If uh, he gets that rapport with golf, see, that's the issue with, with the coronavirus. Um, the time that they're going to have together to build that rapport between the quarterback and the wide receiver is, is going to be limited. So it's, it's definitely going to be interesting to see if there's an effect played. Definitely something we'll have to look out for, especially with, you know, Florida's got three receivers we'll discuss and, and, and uh, yeah, that's going to be an issue there for, for all of them and all the teams uh, out there. So let's go back to a year ago and the Jets are drafting Ja'Kai Polite and Will, man, that didn't work out too well for the Jets there. <laughs> so, uh, it didn't work out too well for Polite either. No, it did not. It did not. But hey, look, that didn't deter them from drafting another Florida pass rusher in Jabbar Zaniga. You know, even with a, a very limited 2019, Zuniga gets drafted by a team with a huge need uh, for a pass rusher. Zuniga has the look, has the attributes of attributes of what NFL teams are looking for in a pass rushing defensive end. Well, was it surprising to you a bit that Zuniga went before Grenard? I mean, it was. I, I think he's. Um, from a physical perspective, maybe um, is a little bit more gifted than Grenard, but Grenard's really the guy who slid into the role that was abandoned by Polite, and and maybe the Jets are sort of banking on the fact that Zaniga is a reason that Grenard and Polite were, were both so effective, at least when Zaniga was on the field. Um, yeah, the, the biggest thing for me is that when even you know last year against Georgia, obviously um, Zaniga was was injured and and not himself. But even even two years ago, we remember the red zone stand, but but he didn't have any sacks and he only had two tackles for loss in those games. And Jake Fromm was really comfortable in both of those games, but particularly in 2019. And, and you know you do have to wonder whether he's going to be able to beat. Um, you know, elite offensive lineman at the NFL level, but at the same time, um, you know, he's going to get an opportunity to with the Jets because they obviously 
obviously have a spot to fill. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see when he's fully healthy, when he's got, when he comes into a season where he, where he's not hampered, is he going to be able to be that elite pass rusher? Um, I'd be surprised if he turns into a guy who's got 12 or 13 sacks in yeah. a year. Um, I think he's more of a situational pass rusher, but he is really good at setting the edge against the run. They did actually move him inside a little bit mm-hmm. during the season as well. And Especially so for the Georgia that, game because you know, he was a little banged up, so I think they tried to help him out and, and move him a little inside. Yeah, and so you wonder whether that versatility is going to allow him to, you know, whether that's something maybe the Jets thought was was unique, is being able to move him inside. And if he's got the pass rush moves to, to rush the passer from the inside, that can be a real benefit to a team like the Jets. Yeah, and and speaking towards that, the opportunity one hundred percent will be there. He's gonna he's gonna replace Henry Anderson, who was the uh, other end uh, to the other side of Quinn and Williams. Uh, Quinn and Williams, the twenty nineteen first round selection for the Jets. So you're gonna have both those two, uh, Williams and uh, Zuniga, on the edge uh, again, setting the run. I mean, Williams will get after the quarterback. Uh, I still think he can do it. Um, six and a half sacks in twenty eighteen when he was fully healthy. So I, I can get behind that. Suniga will provide an effect for uh, for the Jets' pass rush. Um, but, yeah, mostly run-stopping is definitely going to be the value for him. Um, he's going and replacing a guy who won sack 11 tackles in a season of play where he played 13 games. So you're, you're definitely replacing a guy who you'll automatically step up and be the better option for the team. So they're going to put their weight on you to, to do work. And, and still, Quinton Williams on the other side, he's going to be the defense's attention. So Suniga could provide a sneaky uh, value pick there at the 79th pick in the draft. Okay, next up is Jonathan Grenard to the Houston Texans. And Tyler, man, uh, here, he has to be excited uh, to be on the same defense as J.J. Watt, (laughs) him garnering so much attention. You know, could could that just aspect of alone, that that aspect alone, could that open up things for Grenard to make an early impact? I I think he definitely will have an impact. Uh, Watt, with his injury history, is just, it's it's nerve-wracking. So whether or not he... When Watts on the field, yes, I, I do believe that there will be some uh, eyes turned away from uh, Grenard to go and make plays. Um, but Watt, with his injury history, it's just nerve-wracking for me to, to see if he plays even a full season. I, I doubt he will. Um, but he did have, uh, talking in Grenard's uh, stake, he did have a career year at Florida. I mean, he had, coming in as a transfer, um, absolutely incredible player for Florida. I actually had him over Zuniga, uh, at least in my rankings. I love him as coming off of both the outside linebacker and the D-end uh, role. I think he will play D-end for, um, for Houston. He's going to probably replace Angelo uh, Blackson. Played 15 games, zero sacks. So it's another it's another Gator player who's going to a situation where he'll clearly have a role. Um, it will take him out of the outside linebacker position, but I definitely think he can play the, the D-end role as well. And it's a clear need uh, for the team. They lost Clowney. Um, to the Seattle uh, last year. So they needed that guy to come in. They didn't draft one last year. And with J.J. Watt's injury history, we touched on it, they're going to need a guy that can that can still get after the quarterback and, and cause fear and, and make the pass rush just a little bit more scary. And and uh, everything we know about Grenardis, he's an absolute workhorse, and he, he's going to go out there and he's going to try and make plays on every single down. Uh, I absolutely love him going to the spot. 
Yeah, I think the thing that surprises me about Grenard when I actually looked at it is he's heavier than Zuniga. And when mm. I think about last year in particular, I, I think he showed more quickness, mm-hmm. at least when he was trying to get to the quarterback um, and really sort of was, was a terror against Auburn and just Bo Nix <laughs> was shaken during the, during that game. And then against Virginia with Bryce Perkins, he was he was back there in the backfield a lot. Pretty strong against the run. Um you know, had a pretty slow 40 time, which I think scared some teams off in some capacity and probably allowed him to drop to the Texans. So I think the third round's probably about right for him. So yeah. um, I'd be really surprised if at some point in his career he doesn't have 10 sacks um, in, a, in a season. The the thing I would caution people against is that the Texans aren't going to be able to score now that DeAndre Hopkins isn't there. <laughs> and so how often is the opposing team going to be behind and is he going to be able to pin his ears back and go after the quarterback? I think that's maybe one of the... Uh, one of the things that people would need to watch there in terms of his production in the NFL, but certainly he's going to get an opportunity. I mean, what, what obviously you mentioned his injury history earlier, earlier, but, but just, they don't have anybody at defensive end. He's going to be able to step right in. I suspect that they're going to have him out there on the field early and that uh, he's going to, he's going to have to prove that he can stay on the field for three, you know, for all three downs. But, uh, but at least he was able to do that at Florida. And I think those skills will translate. I mentioned it last week in in the preview. I think my most intriguing player for this draft for the Gators was going to be LaMichael Pirine just because of doing so well in 2018 in the run game and then the stats falling off mainly because we know the offensive line uh, couldn't open up enough holes for him and kind of opening up himself in the passing game uh, a bit in 2019. So he'll get to go and join Zuniga uh, for the Jets, uh, you know, and a few other Gators uh, there in, in New York now. Le'Veon Bell's already there and she get a bulk of the carries, but, you know, he's going into an offense that can use his versatility. And, and I think there's some value here in P. Ryan uh, on third downs and in the red zone, Tyler. Yeah, well, I mean, just starting with Bell, I mean, he had a career down year. Um, Gase talked about it before the 2019 season that he wasn't really uh, too thrilled that they spent that much money on Bell. I don't really think uh, Bell's – I think he'll play this year, but I don't think going into a 2021 season, Bell's really locked for that role. Uh, They've been looking to trade him for since that 2019 comment when Adam Gase was not too thrilled about bringing him in. 3.2 3.2 average rushing. That's not going to get it done at the NFL level. Uh, I think Piran can come in and, and be a really good change of pace back. And, and Piran's used to always to being in a system uh, where Damian Pierce took 54 touches last year. Malik Davis took 34 along with the quarterback mobility and what the quarterbacks were designed for to run. So Piran's used to being in a multi-back system. And, and I think that's what he could walk into with the Jets. They have no other guy. Uh, they let Bilal Powell walk. Um, there's no real other guy that's going to cause any competition. But Michael Piran will step on as the two. And I think he's he's used to fighting for, for every single touch he gets. So I think that's what he'll go in and do uh, for the Jets. He, he definitely could get some red zone work. I could see that happening. Well, Tyler brings up a good point there. Of course, you know, 2018 or more so than last year, almost 50-50 split with Jordan Scarlett. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and you know, two years ago with Scarlett, he and Scarlett basically had the same – um, yard per carry average this year Pierce had a little bit higher average but um, Pierce was obviously in in games after the defense had been sort of softened up a little bit by Pirine because early on the defense was typically in the backfield against Florida's offensive line this past season but the you know the reason that Pirine went in the fourth round is because he can catch the ball and, you know, so when, when you think about him being the number two running back with the Jets, but specifically when you think about fantasy from a PPR perspective in those sorts of leagues, I think he might have some real value because he's going to be a target. I mean, that was that was really the a huge deal for Mullen's offense was being able to have P. Ryan and, and Pitts in you know, in, in the 11 personnel and then just split them both out wide. And all of a sudden you've got defensive backs 
Um, you've, you've either got defensive backs on guys who are bigger and stronger, or you've got um, linebackers on guys who are faster and quicker. And, and he's going to be able to contribute that sort of thing to the Jets offense right away, even if he struggles to sort of, you know, even if he's not a dynamic back out of the, out of the backfield. Yeah, I just think, you know, I said it in a preview last week, Will and, and, and Tyler. I mean, I just barely remember, even last year when the offensive line for Florida struggled, him getting tackled for a loss of yardage. He always finds a way to make, you know, a yard or two, even if the blocking's not there, wiggle his way. He doesn't take a, a whole lot of lost yardage plays. So I think that's, an, uh, look, it's a minor thing, but, you know, maybe another value teams can look at. Absolutely. Um, and, and yeah, I, I barely touched on the receiving. I mean, that that's there as well. And one issue with Florida last year was finally getting going in, in the running game. You, they started to see it at the end with the line. Uh, I think P. Ryan really had potential to do a lot more. Uh, the hindrance of the line, though, was, was holding him back. I think going uh, into the Jets system, I think... Uh, he's going to get opportunity. Adam Gase does like to run multi-backs, so he's going to be a much better option than what Adam Gase was dealing with last year. We had Bilal Power and Ty Montgomery. Ty Montgomery was a wide receiver transformed into a running back, so you already know what you're kind of getting out of uh, out of Pirine from the running aspect and, and the receiving aspect as well. I think he could definitely steal some third-down work from Bell, um, which would hurt Bell's fantasy value, but it would definitely provide some sneaky uh, – handcuff, and just overall value from uh, LaMichael Piran. All right. So uh, one of the biggest questions uh, for, for the Gators in, in this draft, if not the biggest, was where you know Florida's deep wide receiver core would get drafted. Uh, it took some time uh, behind Van Jefferson, but Freddie Swain gets uh, you know put in a great situation out in Seattle with Russell Wilson. Will you and I were, were taking talking over the weekend, and and you really like this fit. Um, I know uh, I bring this play up a lot when discussing Swain, but the catch and run versus Tennessee in 2018. Franks escapes the pocket, found Swain. He runs away from Tennessee players. I mean, that's the type of play I see something uh, a good bit of. You know, Russell Wilson freelancing, creating plays, and and, and you know finding a, a streaking you know Freddie Swain, and and they're like uh, you know plays like that uh, or something. I can see you know maybe uh, Seattle uh, getting with Russell Wilson teaming up with Freddie Swain. Yeah, well, I mean, this is really one where I think Mullen should should be crowing a little bit because under McElwain, Swain and Hammond, both of those guys in particular, really didn't do a whole lot within the offense, and all of a sudden he was a revelation once once Mullen came into the came into the program. You know, the interesting thing is I mentioned that Van Jefferson had eight explosives last year on seventy targets. Over the last two years, Swain's had fourteen explosives on seventy eight targets. So he's a lot more explosive player than I think we give him credit for, which is interesting because he doesn't seem all that explosive mm-hmm. on punt returns but the minute they get it the minute they get the ball in his hands on a slant or like you mentioned in the, on that play against Tennessee where it broke down you know he really has the ability to take the ball the distance and he showed that with his 40 time I think he was like a 4.46 or something like that for his 40 time so he's got real good straight line speed um, you know and, and then the fact that he was uh, I wouldn't say he was an explosive punt returner, but he was an excellent punt returner and that he did not make mistakes. He fair caught when he was supposed to. He didn't fumble the ball. He's going to get on the field just as a special teamer right away and then have the ability to grow into a larger role. And and Seattle in particular – Seattle in particular is a team that they took DK Metcalf a couple of years ago in the second round, but they have not relied on first round wide receivers really that much that I can recall. And they've really developed guys, you know, guys like Tyler Lockett and that sort of stuff from, you know, internal. And, and so I suspect Swain's really going to get an opportunity to grow within that program. Tyler, before you jump in here, man, it's now we're getting into you know, these late picks and these guys are on offense. Uh, not really a lot of fantasy value out there unless you're just in some deep, deep, deep leagues. <laughs> 
Yeah, not uh, not necessarily, but really what you're looking for when you when you find these deep, deep wide receivers is will they be able to provide any sort of value? Uh, and what will they be able to do with that value and, and with anything that they can do for the team? So obviously special teams, uh, when you're looking very deep at, at a wide receiver core, um, you look at can they provide an effect on special teams, and I think Swain can. Seattle already announced that's what they plan on using him to do and having him grow into a wide receiver role. Uh, only one punt return touchdown for the Gators um, for Swain, but I think uh, he has that explosive ability to to make plays in that in that punt return game. Um, they need that piece. I think he's coming in uh, fighting for the fourth spot for the fourth receiver, so he can not only provide that return game uh, value, but He's competing with David Moore and, and Philip Dorsett as the 3-4 the in in uh, Seattle. So I, I think he can definitely find his way into uh, into the starting offense come probably the end of the year. There's probably not too much value this year, but, but definitely look to see what he can do in the return game and look to see what he can do um, with battling out David Moore and Philip Dorsett. Philip Dorsett's on a, a one-year deal as well, so... There's not a there's not a commitment to him. They drafted Swain with a pick. Um, unlike undrafted guys, they clearly see a value in taking him. So um, interested to see what Swain grows into. All right, and last one for the Gators. Tyree Cleveland gets drafted by the Broncos, and uh, going to be tough to make headway there on a loaded depth chart, but uh, a depth chart that didn't really get all that loaded until this past weekend when Denver also drafted Alabama's Jerry Judy, 15 overall, and Penn State's K.J. Hamler, 46 overall. So Cleveland's going to have to come in and prove he can hang somewhat with those guys. One plays will, and you guys both just mentioned it, you know, the, the right attitude and, and experience to be successful in special teams for, for Tyree Cleveland. We've seen him out there just enjoying the game of football the, the last couple of years with the coaching change, uh, running with players down the field with long score touchdowns or running with them on the sideline. Uh, a guy who's really enjoyed football the last couple of years, uh, a gunner uh, on special teams as well. So if, if much like Swain, but um, maybe in a different fashion, going to have to make his way, I think, on, on special teams first and foremost. Yeah, I think Cleveland's career at Florida it was a little bit underwhelming, really, when you look at sort of the hype when he came in. And, and when McElwain flipped him, it was, it was a pretty significant deal right on signing day there, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, but his unselfishness is something that I think really has stuck out and, and really stuck out for this entire wide receiver group. And this is one of those times, you know, when you're in the seventh round and you've already drafted two wide receivers early, you need a guy who's just going to come in and grit and grind. And Cleveland fits that profile. But he also fits that profile from the standpoint of, He's got significant talent. It just wasn't something that necessarily got unlocked in a big way at Florida other than the the, the heave to cleave against Tennessee after the hurricane. But, you know, I think that's the thing. As you look at somebody, he's fast, he's big, he's strong. Um, he ran pretty good routes when he was there at Florida. He just wasn't somebody who got utilized a whole lot for whatever reason. And, and so, you know, I understand why the Broncos would take a flyer on him, particularly knowing that he's not going to be an issue, that he's not going to be really – I mean, he'll be pushing for reps, but he's not going to be complaining if he doesn't get them. Yeah, and, and I think the whole goal for Denver in this class is they came in with Deshaun Hamilton and Cortland Sutton, and that was it. Uh, Sutton, a breakout player, um, but Deshaun Hamilton, really not a reliable two wide receiver at all. Uh, they drafted Jerry Judy early in the first round, and then they went right back to receiver with their next pick by getting K, uh, K.J. Hamler. Um they go with Tyree Cleveland too. So they get three wide receivers in this class. I think their goal is to see 
who's going to hit and who can be relied on uh, for this offense in the future. They also uh, obviously have Noah Fant, too, at the tight end position, so they're giving Drew Locke as many targets as possible to work with. Uh, I think the whole goal, though, is, is for every team in this division is – Tyreek Hill is on the Chiefs, and the Raiders, they tried to emulate that by going with Henry Ruggs. Um, Denver tries to do the same thing. They get a K.J. Hamler. Um, They're just trying to see if any of these guys can kind of pan out and be that dominant effect um, for their offense. I think Tyree Cleveland definitely can find a role for them, uh, definitely in the return game if he can fight out K.J. Hamler. But I think the opportunity is there because there's no proven receivers outside of Cortland Sutton in that offense. Um you can't count the rookies yet because Jerry Judy and um, KJ Hamler have yet to take a snap with Drew Locke. So I think that there's definitely a competition. I would love to see what happens. Um, I kind of would like to compare it to when the Broncos had uh, Philip Lindsay and they had um, Royce Freeman last year uh, or a couple years ago. And, and Philip Lindsay came in as an undrafted free agent close to about where Cleveland's at as a seventh rounder. And Royce Freeman had that second, that second round value and Lindsay takes the job. So I think Denver is plenty okay with uh, with going with the best option, not really worried about draft capital, which I think is definitely in Tyree Cleveland's favor. All right. So that is a look for the uh, Gators that were drafted uh, there. But, of course, uh, guys that don't get drafted get uh, signed un- undrafted free agents, and Gators had uh, a few of those guys as well. Tommy Townsend, punter, uh, looks to be uh, the punter for Kansas City now after they picked him up as an undrafted free agent. And then on Tuesday – um, uh, Kansas City released Dustin Colquitt after 15 seasons. So Townsend uh, gets uh, gets in there and uh, looks to be the punter this coming up season for the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, Josh Hammond signed here with the Jaguars. David Reese to the Carolina Panthers and defensive tackle Adam Schuler, uh to Arizona. So before we let Tyler go, let's take a peek at 2021 never too early right i mean a, a year away so uh <laughs> of course you know, as soon as the draft is over you see uh, you start seeing mock drafts for 2021 so uh, uh just peak there and look some names for florida that uh, will be floated around the next year or so of course kyle pitt start start right there kyle trask marco wilson tj slayton trevon grimes jeremiah moon maybe brenton cox if he has a dominant season you know, he'll be draft eligible uh to transfer from georgia there so looked at a few 2021 mock drafts from publications like cbs sports nbc sports walter football none of them have any gators going in the first round that includes kyle pitts there so look the gators have had 10 first round picks in the last eight drafts uh, and a lot of these mock drafts you know only just one round there so you know Ten first-round picks in the last eight drafts for the Gators. Florida has had a first-round pick in 12 of the last 14 years. So if these mocks somewhat hold true, uh, then those mocks will take a hit. But, you know, let's be honest. These mocks will change a lot. (laughs) Many mocks a year ago had Jake Fromm going in the first round and Joe Burrow amid the late rounder. So we see how quickly things can change and how that turned out. So, uh, yeah, but still an interesting look a, a year out from where they, they, from what they think about Florida. Uh, you know, Florida only had one first round pick this past season. And as of now, many not seeing, uh, having one next year, Will. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense based on where you think like typically first round picks are quarterbacks and they're, and you know, you sort of, there's nobody on the offensive line, so I don't suspect there's going to be an offensive tackle that's going to get drafted up that high. And just sort of the the positions that you think of that people really emphasize in the first round. The only guy right now who's really sort of who sort of fits that profile is Kyle Pitts. But I mean, with an excellent season, I think he has an opportunity to jump up there absolutely. Especially as as much emphasis as you're seeing on the tight end, and certainly down in Tampa, they're going to have. 
they're going to have Gronk showing people down there what a tight end can do. And, and you know, we saw it with Hernandez and, and Gronk in New England. So I, I do think that there's an opportunity for Pitts to jump up there. Um, if Damian Pierce had a really big year, you could see him maybe sneaking into the bottom half of the first round. Um, Slayton maybe, but, the, you know, again, I, defensive tackles are usually – they have to be truly, truly elite to get drafted up at that at that kind of level. So, um, yeah, I, I think I think Florida's team and, – and this is something that we sort of thought all along is that this, this third year under Mullen, you've got sort of the transition in recruiting, and he's held on to some guys. He's brought in some transfers, but the transfers are the guys who are going to have to be the elite difference makers. So the guys like Lingard, the guys like Shorter, um, and the guys like Cox and, you know, those guys may end up being the guys who leave if, if they have fantastic seasons, but obviously that's something that you'd want because if they have a fantastic season, then uh, you figure that Florida's done really, really well. Tyler, you and I were talking behind the scenes a little bit uh, today. You, you're a big fan of one Kyle Pitts. I am. So I'm a huge fan. Uh, before before I get into Kyle Pitts real quick, Marco Wilson, before uh, he decided not to declare for the draft, was looking at around second uh, second round value. So going back for one more year, I think he definitely could sneak in into the first round. But Kyle Pitts is a guy that I, I could definitely compare to the, to the Hawkinson fan uh, draft from just a couple years ago. I think if he would have – now, he wasn't eligible, but I think if he, if he was uh, to have gone in this past year's draft, I think he would have been the number one tight end off the board. I think that's just the value he has. Uh, now, this year was a down year for tight ends. Last year was just such an up year for them. Um, I really, really like Kyle Pitts a, a ton. I think he has first round, uh, first round value if he can uh, put together another really good season. I mean, he had defenses uh, drawing up plays specifically for him, and, and with how talented our wide receivers were, it was opening up a lot for our offense. I absolutely love Kyle Pitts, and then I really like Kyle Trask as well. Um, I think Trask could have uh, could be a, a sneaky riser, riser in draft boards. I think he has NFL starting ability. Um, I got to see a little bit more for a full season for him uh, this upcoming year. But I'm really excited to see him as well. But Kyle Pitts is definitely a guy. Him and Marco Wilson are probably the highest chances to probably be in that first round. All right, all right. Tyler, man, I can't thank you enough uh, for giving your uh, you know NFL insight here. Gators Breakdown is 99% Gator football. So, you know, we get to talk a little NFL uh, this time of year with, with the draft. Uh, let our listeners know what you guys at the uh, Fantasy Stock Exchange got coming up. Yeah, so again, we just put out our, uh, our rookie draft guide, uh, everyone in the class uh, with fantasy value, uh, fscdraftguide.com. You can find that. We've got our, uh, our main full uh, draft coming up as well. We're going to release that uh, around uh, 4th of July weekend, so that's in, a, that's in a little ways from now, but we're getting that working on. Um, we got a lot of stuff, uh, stuff going on. You can check out our YouTube. We're on uh, most places you can find podcasts as well if you guys want to hear us. Um, a startup, uh, but definitely, definitely something we're, we're pumping out a lot of content for seven videos, at least a week. Um, so we're just trying to get as much content out for the, for the viewer as possible. Um, very excited to keep that going. And, and I'm, I'm around on a lot of different places too, as well. Uh, a lot of different channels. I try and try and feature, uh, as many places as possible. So hopefully you guys run to me, uh, somewhere else as well, but, uh, it was a really, really big pleasure uh, being on, on Gators breakdown. Thanks, man. Thanks. And, uh, you know, any way we can help out, you know, we've, we've all been there with the startups and all that stuff. So we get you out there and, uh, look, uh, you know what you're talking about. So it, it's a big help in, in letting our, uh, our NFL fantasy uh, fans know, know what they're getting out of the Gators. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Tyler. Thank you. All right, Will. So good stuff there as we take a look at the, uh, 
NFL draft from a Gator perspective here. And look, well, you and I kind of alluded to it uh, a bit here, uh, of course. I mean, Mullen's going to be able to take this on their recruiting trail, at you know, somewhat. You you, you can you can spin and in in a, in a positive light what's been going on here uh, the last couple of years with the twenty one wins and now you know some success with, with the NFL draft as well. And you know, last year, yeah, after one season, and, and you can say this for any school. Um, how much is it? the past coach and how much isn't the current coach, but as you get away from the, the higher further and further away, you know, you're going to start giving uh, more credit to Dan Mullen. And after 2017, a lot of people will give Dan Mullen a lot of credit for last year's draft too. Uh, but, you know, McElwain brought these players in and, you know, while we, you know, slam recruiting for the most part for not being up to Florida standards, still in, you know, still okay, recruiting for you know on a national scale just not what we you know we were used to seeing beforehand uh from a Florida Gators head coach on the recruiting trail so you know Mullen taking Michael Wayne's players winning with them turning them into NFL draftees uh, maybe even more credit for Mullen you know is taking these transfers Van Jefferson and Jonathan Grenard that he only had for a season or two and also turning them into NFL draft picks I mean uh Mullen can take this out and go shopping with it yeah, he absolutely should. I mean, I, I looked at, I think it was last off season. I looked at the development and the number of two stars, three stars, four stars, and five stars that Mullen had go into the NFL draft compared to sort of what the average was. And, and each of those categories, his, his players made it to the NFL more often than, than, you know, sort of the average in, in college football. And I think that's indicative of his ability to, to develop the players and, and get them to be a lead. And, and, you know, certainly when you've got seven guys getting drafted and then you got another three or four who are being undrafted free agents who have the potential to represent the university in the NFL, it's a big deal because, you know, I mean, if, if I'm a recruit, I'm looking at LSU and seeing 14 guys get drafted <laughs> and saying, all right, that might be a place I want to go. And, and you know, LSU just won the national championship. That's where Florida wants to get to. And so one of those steps is convincing recruits that you're going to get them to the next level. And that's why I said earlier that having all three – um, having all having all four wide receivers get a shot in the league, but having three of them get drafted, I think is a big deal because I do think that the unselfishness of Cleveland and Swain gave them a leg up when it came to teams that were considering taking them in the fifth, sixth, and seventh rounds, and and that's something that I think that is going to help Mullen as you know if somebody tries to negatively recruit and say you know you're not going to get 80 catches, um, Mullen can come back at him and say well you're going to be healthy when you get to the NFL and by the way you're going to get there anyway so um, yeah he should absolutely use it for recruiting anything he can do to help bump up the talent level and. Um, you know the, the the issue with recruiting's never never been there aren't talented players in Florida. It's always been that you know you're competing with the best of the best of the best when you compare it to Alabama, Georgia, and, and LSU, and so you need to be up at that level. And and Mullen's slowly getting there. All right, and we will kind of to extend what you were just saying uh, with those receivers. Swain and Cleveland's uh, you know selection on Saturday, along with Jefferson's on Friday, uh, marked the first time since 1978 that Florida had three wide receivers drafted in the same year. Florida joins Tennessee and LSU as the only schools in the SEC to have had three wide receivers selected in two separate drafts in the common draft era. Additionally, it was the first time since 2009 that more than one Florida wide receiver was selected the, the same year and the fourth time since 2000. And uh, that feat ranks second in the SEC. So, Will, kind of like you just said, you know, for an offense that spreads the ball around so much and so many players that, you know, can be a knock on Mullen by some, 
Three guys still get drafted. Kyle Pitts looking at as a high, high draft pick next season. Uh, Mullen can definitely uh, go shopping with that. A uh, few other notes uh, here uh, about the draft before we move on. Florida ranks tied for first nationally among schools with the most wide receivers selected in the first three rounds uh, during the common draft era, tied with 19 each uh, among Tennessee and Ohio State. Uh, and for the sixth straight year, at least five Gators were selected. This is the 13th time since 2000 that the Gators had at least five Gators taken in the NFL draft. And Will, one more. The Gators' seven total drafted players represent the most in the state of Florida this year. Florida with seven draftees. Miami with four. FIU with two. FSU with one. UCF with one. Florida Atlantic one. South Florida zero. Florida leading the way here in the state of Florida. Three more than Miami. Six more than FSU. And Florida International with two. Actually, one more than FSU. So, I mean, look. Only two years of Willie Taggart. A little of this goes to Jimbo Fisher as well. But, man, the development there the last two years. You can, I mean, for FSU fans and media out there that want to slam FSU for firing Willie Taggart after two seasons. Well, this is one example that, you know, anybody in support of firing Willie Taggart can take to the bank one player drafted from FSU. And, you know, some of those, some of those were highly rated recruiting classes. They were all highly rated <laughs> recruiting classes. In fact, if you looked at pure talent overall, even the roster rankings, right? It's not yeah. like these guys have all transferred out. It's just they haven't developed. And, you know, we've seen personally at Florida what kind of damage a two-year reign of terror can do because we got, what, two and a half years <laughs> of the McElwain-Nussmeyer regime and, and things just sort of fell apart. Obviously, I, they never really even got started at Florida State under Taggart, which is um, – which is substantial. It's significant considering how much talent that they actually had at that program and, and the guys that they brought in. But yeah, I mean, it says something about the difference between, between a, a high quality head coach and somebody who maybe isn't necessarily ready for prime time. And, you know, I know Taggart's name was mentioned when it came to Florida's job. So, uh, Oh man, you think <laughs> about Taggart, you think about Chip Kelly and then Dan Mullen were sort of the three that you, that you sort of heard getting bantered around and whew, <laughs> boy, did Florida pick the right guy there but uh yeah i want to go back to what you said about the wide receiver you know when you think of the wide receivers being drafted when, when you think about florida and the program and when the program's ha- program has excelled i mean you know national championships have been surrounded by guys who are going in the, the first three rounds of the draft right so mm-hmm. guys like rache caldwell jacques green taylor jacobs um you know rache caldwell um andre caldwell percy harvin uh, david nelson um you know all, all the Riley Cooper, all those guys who became quality NFL players or at least had an opportunity in the NFL um, are tied in with Florida's offense being good, but also Florida just being excellent as a program. And so I, I do think that there's something you can read into having those three guys get drafted, having Hammond be an undrafted free agent, and now sort of having this next wave of guys coming in. If Mullen can keep that going, I think that's one of the things that, um, that we really ought to look for is that, you know, it took Spurrier four, five, six years to break through to where he finally had teams that were going, you know, 12 and one losing in that Fiesta Bowl in 95 and then winning the championship in 96. We've sort of talked this entire time that Mullen's Mullen's ability to build the program is going to be more of a slow burn than a quick, uh, than a quick shot up. And, and I do think that if we, if we see wide receivers step up in 2020, and really sort of excel the same way these guys did when when Mullen took over from McElwain. I think that's a really good sign for the program moving forward. 
Well, one more thing, and I'm going to connect some dots here. Uh, we mentioned mock drafts uh, a little bit for 2021, and one name going in the first round that uh, Gator fans have noticed is not a Gator, and that is one Georgia quarterback, Jamie Newman. And your, your latest at read and reaction, uh, you know, is, you know, can basically, you know, can he take over from? Can Jamie Newman, the transfer from Wake Forest, come in and 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 step in for Jake Fromm and take Georgia to the next step? And Will, toward the end of your article, you know, the quote here, and I'll let you build off of this: Newman has the skills you need to be an elite quarterback, but has not been able to consistently apply them yet over a course of a season. So, in your film review of one Jamie Newman, and everybody go to read and reaction and, and read and, and look at these highlights. Uh, Will has pinpointed. What did you notice? Newman's a really interesting case because when you're watching it, usually you watch a quarterback and if you watch a full game, you sort of get an idea of what he does well and what he doesn't do well. And, you know, I watched, I watched a full game that he played against NC state because that was his best game of the, of the season. And I, I, I left that game going, Oh crap, we're in trouble. <laughs> like, like if, if that's the, be- if that's his ceiling, we're in trouble. But then you look at his stats and you're like, Eh. Like, and I even did that in the article. I compared 20, 2019 Jamie Newman to 2018 Felipe Franks, and they're basically the same player. And if you think about the things that people said about Franks, it's like he's got a cannon for an arm. He just needs to learn how to read defenses, needs to not lock on to his first receiver. And those are the things you started to see when you looked a little bit deeper into what Newman was doing. He, he clearly, clearly, clearly locked on to Surratt and, and Hinton as two main receivers. And those guys accounted for like 50% of the total catches that that Wake Forest had last year and there were times where those guys would be open because the coverage dictated it and he would make awesome throws to them and then there would be times where they would be bracketed and he would still try to throw it into them and I think that's where sort of the 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 disconnect between the stats that he's put up and um, and what you see on film because he's got a cannon for an arm he's got an ability to run um, he's able to take advantage he's able to build you know there were some times there was one example where he sort of danced around the pocket made time and then just threw a bullet to the outside and was able to convert a third down against Virginia Tech he's got the skills I understand why people look at it and say this guy's going to be a great NFL quarterback but you, know, you and I have talked extensively about the work I've done looking back at high school accuracy and his high school accuracy was terrible. It hasn't been, it's been better in college, but it hasn't been elite by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, Georgia, while, I mean, Georgia's bringing in a lot of new guys on offense this year, a brand new offensive coordinator, maybe they gel, but you also have the possibility that they don't at all because there hasn't been any ability to develop trust. And that's one of the things when you're, and Georgia's basically a national championship or bust at this point, right? I mean, an SEC title isn't even enough for their fans because they still have to hear 1980, mm-hmm. even if they win the SEC title and then flame out in the playoffs. And 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 so at some point they're going to be down. And the question is in the huddle, are they going to trust the quarterback? And and I think, you know, three years ago against Alabama, Kirby Smart clearly didn't trust Jake Fromm. He took the ball out of his hands actually late and allowed Alabama to come back with Tua. And then even you look at that South Carolina game last year, I mean, Fromm played terribly and he didn't really play very well all year long, but you figure you got your junior quarterback who's, who's really supposed to be your stud. And they really kind of took the ball out of his hands in that South Carolina game as well and cost him that game. So, you know, I, I do wonder, is there going to be a level of trust between Munkin and Smart and, and Newman and then all the players? And, you know, he's got all the skills 
that you would want to see, except for, like I said, I think he locked onto some guys and, and would force the ball in. And, and you see that in his, in his interception total. So he had 26 touchdowns, 11 interceptions. Um, that was really the difference between him and then Frank's the year before where Frank's had 24 touchdowns and six interceptions. So Newman really didn't take care of the ball all that well with Wake Forest and, and the offensive line at Wake Forest wasn't terrible. Like it, it wasn't something where you're like, Oh yeah, he's getting hit all the time and that's going to change when he's at Georgia. So everything will get better. So uh, I'm, I'm left not entirely sure what we're going to see out of Jamie Newman in 2020. Like it's entirely possible that he wins the Heisman trophy because he has those sort of skills. But I think that's a really, really low probability. I think the higher probability is that he ends up being about what we would have expected from Felipe Franks last year, which I think most of us thought coming into the year might be good enough to get Florida to be competitive with Georgia, but that was going to be a rough one. But that if Florida could pull that out, then they had an opportunity to make the playoff. But, um, you know, that's not good enough for Georgia now. And, and it's going to be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out because, you know, you win the recruiting national championship the first couple of years that you're uh, that you're a head coach and everybody pats you on the back and says, this is great. You're building, you know, we're hopeful that the program's going to take the next step. And, but, you know, Georgia's actually sort of receded the last couple of years going from the national championship to just, you know, the SEC championship loss and then, uh, and then not even making, or, you know, and then the SEC championship lost to LSU last year that wasn't even remotely competitive. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure people in Athens are getting a little bit antsy, which is one of the reasons why they're pushing the Newman narrative. But I, I think there's some things that they need to be concerned about and things that especially because of the coronavirus, because the, the schedule might be condensed and because they have to play Alabama, Auburn and Florida next year, that there might be an opportunity for the Gators to get them. Yep, and you know, Pro Football Focus is also one of those publications out there, uh, kind of behind the hype train uh, of one Jamie Newman. And since they like to give so much of the positive, uh, I'll throw some negative out there too. So uh, you did a little bit in your article there, Will. Uh, but his, you know, stats over his final five games, Virginia Tech, Clemson, Duke, Syracuse, and uh, Michigan State in the bowl game. Now, don't get me wrong. I know injuries played a part here uh, to him and his wide receivers uh, to a point. Uh, in this stretch here, but here we go. 54 of one for, of 114 for a 47.4% uh, co- completion percentage, 161.8 yards per game, five touchdown passes, three of those versus Michigan State in the bowl game, four interceptions, uh, 3.28 yards per rush, one rushing touchdown, and two fumbles uh, there in, in his final five games. So uh, you bring that up to a lot of people in the first thing, or you know, the Georgia side, and the first thing they mention, oh, well, he'll have more talent at Georgia. And there was a lot of injuries he dealt with there and all that. Yeah, there, are, there is going to be more talent at Georgia. He will be surrounded by, you know, a, a offensive line that was recruited so well, but missing a lot of experience. Still a lot of questions at wide receiver uh, for Georgia. And then you know, replacing DeAndre Swift as well. Georgia has a lot of questions in switching to an offense with, with Todd Munkin as well. But, but Will, I mean, you know, he's also going to be playing a lot better defenses in the SEC, as you already mentioned. Alabama, Auburn, and Florida he'll have to go against. South Carolina did so well against the, the Georgia offense last year as well. So you know, he's gonna he, he's gonna be playing. You know, he's not gonna be just facing two top what forty. 30 defenses that he faced in the SEC. He's going to be facing that, you know, probably almost every other week in the SEC. 
Yeah, well, I think what's important is you listed the last five games that he played there. So Virginia Tech was 32nd in the country against the pass. Clemson was third. Duke was 39th. Syracuse was 85th. And Michigan State was 29th. So out of those five teams, you know, you had three teams in the top 32, and that was when he struggled. And yeah, I think he barely played in the Syracuse game, if I remember right. Well, and then, and then yeah. you look at everybody. Yeah, he had 13 attempts in yeah. that game. But then if you look at the teams that he built up all of his stats on, Utah State, 99th. Bryce, 109th. North Carolina, 58th. Elon, FCS. Boston College, 107th. Louisville, 78th. And North Carolina State, 80th. So that's defensive yards per play allowed, which is what I typically like to look at from a defensive perspective. So basically, he played absolutely garbage defenses for the first seven games of the year, and he looked fantastic. And then all of a sudden, Virginia Tech, Clemson, uh, Duke, Syracuse, and Michigan State, they started playing much more difficult defenses. Four of the five there um, are in the top 39, and he started to struggle, and you see that in the in the stats. So top 25 defenses, he had a passer rating of 97.7. Just power five teams, he was at 126.6. And then <laughs> they played six teams where the defense was 75th or worse, and he had a passer rating of 160. So he really ate up the guys who were who were bad and, and struggled against the teams that were good. And those splits are are important because the interesting thing is, is when you look at Florida, those splits are much less pronounced when you look at it, when you look at Kyle Trask. And so, um, you know, I think Newman has probably the higher ceiling than Trask does. I think Trask is much more consistent. The other thing is, is that Trask has been in that game now against Georgia in Jacksonville, experienced the whole thing. And, and I suspect he's going to be more ready than he was this past year for it. And Newman's going to be experiencing that for the first time. I mean, there is a difference between the SEC and being at Wake Forest, right? There are no expectations at Wake Forest. You go you go six and five, six and six, everybody pats you on the back, says, oh, you did a great job. You go you know, three and nine, they say wait till next year. And if you go nine and three, they're about ready to build a statue for you. Um, you go nine and three at Georgia, they're going to run you out of town. So um, it's a different level of pressure. It's going to be interesting to see how he can deal with it. Yeah, hopefully that, that experience for Trask uh, leads to uh, the right wristbands for the game. So <laughs> That would be useful. <laughs> oh, man. I just, you know, it does hurt, but uh, I'll, I'll play around with it a little bit. i got to have some fun with it. It'll make it much more sweet when they win this year. Dave. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, all right, before we uh, wrap up here, uh, let's get uh, in discussion here for, uh, you know, Mullen hopeful for football uh, to start in the fall. He met with the media uh, on Zoom this past Monday. First time we've been able to talk to Mullen since about mid-March, the week before uh, spring football practice was supposed to start. Uh, said he's more hopeful than optimistic that there will be a season this fall, uh, but it's hard to project, uh, you know, where the world will be in four months from now. Something that can uh, play a part in that is he thinks um, the consensus the consensus among SEC coaches is that uh, they would prefer to have eight weeks to prepare for uh, you know prepare their players for a season. Uh, he thinks everybody would be comfortable with six weeks if needed. Uh, he said he wouldn't mind only having four weeks uh, of practice before the season if they're able to get the players in the weight room for, for a few weeks in advance. He did say you know four weeks would be really really pushing it. Uh, I, I do agree with him on that part. So. You know, Will, um, first time we get to talk to him, um, he kind of mentioned and, and talked a lot about, you know, what just that's just the sport that we love to cover so much, you know, what it means uh, out there to everybody who you know, gets together in the swamp and tailgates every week and uh, all that, all that good stuff. And, you know, 
he you know, he got a little emotional, sentimental, you know, not choke up crying or anything like that. But, you know, you could tell, you know, he, he knows how much this game uh, of college football uh, means to the fan base, means to the students out there. Um, especially, I think, uh, how much it means to us, too, to be able to talk about, about it every every week and, and have a show and, and write about it as well. Uh, but, you know, just kind of, you know, he's been in discussions, of course, with ADs and other college coaches out there. And you know, they have a timeline of eight weeks, six weeks, four weeks that they've discussed. So, you know, it, it, it does, um, you know, lead you to believe that he is also in these conversations and, when he speaks, you know, I, I think we do need to listen uh, about, you know, the whole hopeful more than optimistic. I, I think that is kind of a leeway that we may not get a, a start point that we are accustomed to uh, the first week of September, uh, but hopefully have a somewhat football season somewhere in the fall. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we need to take a take a step back and say, all right, the PGA Tour is going to start up sometime in June. The NBA is talking about coming back and figuring out how to play their season. Um, you know, potentially coming back middle of May, getting those guys in camp. Um, college football is going to have to see how that goes with those organizations and, and, and the setbacks they see and the challenges they have to understand what, what they're going to be able to do and what they're not going to be able to do. Right. And, and we're going to have to see how the virus reacts and is there a second wave and all those sorts of things before you can really put any sort of certainty on what you're doing. I, I do know that I appreciate that he's pushing for at least six weeks um, with a couple of weeks in the weight room before that. I, I do think that if you throw guys out there without, without allowing them to truly prepare physically, you, you're really asking for some problems as the guys get beat up in an entire SEC schedule. So I'm glad to see him asking for that. Um, but, you know, eight weeks, if you're going to start the season, mm-hmm. first week in September means you're really getting in there. Second week in July is is what you're – maybe even first week in July is, is what you're talking about getting in there for, for camp. Um, one, it's really hot, so it's good to get an indoor practice facility. But the, the other thing is, is that it's just – um, it's going to be a long season for the players to have eight mm-hmm. weeks of camp and then go all the way through a, a full season. I, I'm doubtful that we have that early September start. I don't like saying that, but I think that's probably what ends up happening. I think things might get pushed back a little bit, but then you run up against the moral problem of having players play till like February or March and then come back the next year in September to play again. So I, I do think that there's probably going to be some concessions that need to be made, but, um, you know, like I said, we're not going to know until we see with Major League Baseball, until we see with the NBA, PGA Tour. You know, even UFC is going to be is going to be opening up and, and doing some stuff in Florida as well. So yeah, here in Jacksonville, uh, so yeah. And th- and then you've got general hotspots, right? Mm-hmm. And and so the SEC in general has been relatively um, light when it comes to the coronavirus. I mean as opposed to, you know, a team like Penn State, Pennsylvania's been hit reasonably hard. New York has been hit. Like, how, how do you play the Big Ten? Like, how do you do Rutgers, right? If, mm-hmm. if, if you're playing the Big Ten, that's a bigger challenge maybe than getting Alabama to play Auburn. And so maybe they'll have to make some manipulations there. But but Mullen's right about what college football means to people means to people i mean i i'm missing sports in general but one of the things i'm missing is that college football just never really stops and you know there's nothing to argue about right now it's <laughs> everything is sort of stopped and you know every once in a while a recruit pops or something like that but um we got to argue most, we got to argue draft picks this week <laughs> and, well, and, and it was a welcome respite from, from basically saying the same stuff we've been saying for yep. about six weeks right and and the thing is is that 
the people that you tailgate with, the people that you spend time with, the people that you bond over this become your friends and become your family. And so that's really what you're losing when, especially for college football, right? I mean, the people that I talk to from college aren't the people I went through engineering classes with for the most part. They're people I went to football games with. And, you know, the same thing applies now that we're doing this is that the people that I talk to on a day-to-day basis to sort of keep me anchored with the University of Florida are people who have a, a love for the football program and a desire to see it do well. And so those are the things that you're missing when the college football season either gets delayed or if they have to play games without fans or those sorts of things is, you know, the tailgates, the experience, sort of the familial aspect of college football that, that, that I really think makes it unique and different from the other sports that are out there. Yeah, believe me, as fun as the uh, Zoom Harmonic Woods tailgates are, um, I'm missing I'm missing the big bass drum. Uh, you know, so it doesn't get to happen on on a Zoom meeting. So, uh, well, I don't know. We, we are going to have to come up with a definition of whether uh, drinking on a Zoom meeting makes you an alcoholic or not. But uh, <laughs> a lot of people are doing it. So <laughs> I don't think that's drinking at home alone. I think that's drinking with your friends virtually. So we'll uh, we'll give you a pass. Right, that's what we're doing now. So. Uh, just the nature of the business right now. Uh, <laughs> so a little bit of football part of this, Will, before uh, uh, Dylan with Mullen and what he had that what he was talking to us uh, about here is you know key um, is, the, is to maximize the opportunity here uh, that they have now and not dwell on what they're missing. Um, you know, uh, Anthony Richardson, uh, of course, early enrollee quarterback was brought up, and you know Mullen says you know he has more time available to hit the field and and throw now than he normally would have during this time with with classes and and strength conditioning workouts. So you know extending that, uh, I got to ask Mullen if there was any positives that he can take away from what's going on right now, and he said you know how the team is handling the adversity of all this, and he likes where they're at with that with that part of it. You know teams handle adversity all the time, and this is just one more piece there. So the team's mindsets. Uh, the team's mindset with all the uncertainty quote, you know, the big thing is when all this is over, are we going to be the team that's prepared to go? And I think uh, that's a worry there for, I think for all these college football coaches out there, are are these players uh, doing what they're supposed to do? You can't be there with them. You're going to have to rely on, uh, you know, their word, uh, their, their, their mouth to, to tell you the truth here. So, you know, he said they have high expectations within the program, uh, but he doesn't know if the, if the lockdown will necessarily give them advantage over other teams, kind of for what we've mentioned here, you know, the coaches coming back. You, you have almost the entire staff uh, returning, you know, except for Tim Brewster here. Uh, Kyle Trask is returning, and uh, a lot of production uh, in, in key spots still returning for Florida, but Mullen says he's you know, not necessarily sure that gives him an advantage uh, right now. He's pleased with how his players are learning, and the feedback he's gotten from them, quote, I think our guys are handling it, handling it as well as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think that's – Knowing the guys you can trust, knowing the guys you can go to war with is really what comes out of something like this. If you're going to think about something being an advantage, right, is is you're going to know, um, you know, if, if Trash sets up, steps up into a leadership position, if there's an issue that needs to be taken care of and he takes care of it. Um, you're going to know if if guys come in and they know the playbook backwards and forwards so that you can do the physical reps because you don't necessarily have to teach them things during install. Um you know, you'll you'll know if the if the offensive linemen have progressed because they're much more aggressive and much more physical at the point of attack because they know what their assignments are and they know what they're supposed to do or they've spent the time in the weight room for the guys who have access to that sort of stuff that they spent the time in the weight room to, to remain getting to, or, you know to continue getting stronger. So yeah, yeah, I, th- I think you learn who you can trust when 
you have any sort of adversity. And, and this is just one of those things where it's a little bit unique, a little bit different. It's not anything anybody would wish upon any program, but at the same time, learning who you can trust is a big deal, especially considering all the guys they have to replace, um, you know, on the defensive line. We talked about the two guys who got drafted. We talked about the four wide receivers. They're guys that need to be replaced. And the question is going to be, you know, is, is Kadarius Tony going to do what's necessary in order to take the next step? Same thing with Jacob Copeland, which one of the freshman wide receivers is going to be Xavier. Xavier Henderson, or is it going to be Jamarcus Weston? You know, who are the guys who are going to step into those roles, and who are the guys that Mullen's going to trust when it comes to third and two in that game against Georgia? Who's going to be in there? And I think this offseason, more than any other offseason, is really going to dictate who's the guy he's going to be able to trust because he's not going to have an extended camp. He's not, he doesn't have a spring, he doesn't have spring practice, spring game. It's, you know, we're going to have camp and all of a sudden we're going to have games. And so the guys who have built that trust are going to be the guys who get to play. And, and so, yeah, this is going to, it's, it's really an opportunity for the players to differentiate themselves on their own. And, um, you know, obviously you would, you wouldn't want it to be this way, but it is this way. And so that's what we're going to learn. Yeah, well, one part of this, Will, and I keep coming to this, you know, nutrition is so big uh, this time of year, uh, you know, and, and being with, um, you know, you're, you're, you're on campus, uh, you're with the nutritionist uh, on staff, you know, and I know so a lot of people you know, may gloss over this, but, you know, the nutrition part of this I think is huge, you know, are these guys eating the way they're supposed to be eating, you know, and a lot of these guys don't come from, um, you know, the, the background where, you know, you can go out and, and you know, farmer's market and, and, and go eat the, you know, the healthiest food out there. And I mean, they're missing out on, you know, the important you know, nutrition that they're supposed to be getting while they're working out, you know, working out, I think they can get by a little bit more. You know, you can, you can, you can make something up there <laughs> to, to, to go work out. You can go pull a car, you can, you know, make some makeshift, makeshift weights. But I think you know, nutrition, you know, I think is a big part of this that these players are missing out on now and everybody's watching what, what they're eating. And plus, I think, you know, true freshmen or the early enrollees that were going to get a taste of what to expect in spring, now they don't, they, they still don't really know what to do. You know, they, at least with the players who have been through a, a previous spring or been through a season or been through the workout regimen, they can kind of, they know what to expect. There's still guys who are, you know, a part of this team who haven't played a snap, who, you know, some wouldn't be on campus until, you know, summer anyway. Yeah. But, you know, are those guys doing the the, the 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 workout plan, the workout regimen that has been given to them? And but they don't really know how to do it the the way the guys who have already been through a spring and been through a season. So you know, there's two aspects there with you know experience off the field and how to handle everything off the field. Uh, I think really can can play into this and how far teams can go. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm qualified to talk about a lot of things, but nutrition probably isn't one of them. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, everybody's in the same boat, right? I mean, yep. every program has the exact same issues. Um, you know, some teams have a little bit less experience in Florida. Some teams have a little bit more experience in Florida. At the end of the day, when the pads get strapped on, nobody's going to look back and go, oh, coronavirus <laughs> put us at a disadvantage. And, and so the reality is this is all part of, you know, people, you will hear people defend 
um, recruiting by saying, you got to get guys who fit your system. You got to get guys who have the right attitude. You know, I want three stars who work as hard, you know, who work harder than five stars, that sort of stuff. I mean, this is where that starts to become important, right? Is having the right culture, the right people, somebody who cares enough about his teammates and about his own success that he's going to work even when he doesn't necessarily have to, because there's nobody screaming at him and nobody watching him. Um, and, and so having those types of people in the program are important. So everybody has the same general issue. Um, we're going to see. I mean, it, it's going to be fascinating because you look at teams like like Georgia. I think there's a suspicion amongst Florida fans and maybe even some Georgia fans that, that Smart has brought in an awful lot of talent but doesn't necessarily always harness that talent. And part of that is discipline-type things. And, and so, um, you know, is the culture that he's built there strong enough to overcome something like this? And I think we'll learn the same thing about Florida. I, I think for the most part, Mullen has done a really good job of building a culture at Florida. We haven't had any of the shenanigans that were going on under McIlwain, or at least they've been greatly reduced. Um, and, and so I suspect that's going to continue. I suspect the players will come back ready. And the guys who don't, you know, Mullen's built up enough talent that if he's got people who don't come back ready, he's going to have somebody else ready to step in, which isn't something you could have said two or three years ago. All right. Good stuff, Will, man. Uh, of course, the Jamie Newman article just dropped today. Anything else uh, on the horizon for a reading reaction? Yeah, I'm going to be writing a little bit about recruiting, um, hopefully later this week. So, um, you know, especially with with the coronavirus going on, um, there's a little bit of uh, trepidation around that. And with Wilcox and um, flipping, to, flipping to Tennessee, I think there's a little bit of trepidation there. So I'm going to take a look, see where Florida is um, and, and – uh, take a look where they are in relation to where they were last April and, and what maybe the, the lack of an ability to really truly recruit may have on, on the 2021 class. All right. There's Will Miles. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at read and reaction.com and on Twitter at Will Miles SEC. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at Gator Dave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown.